Hi, everyone. Welcome to our discussions or book club or whatever you have it on um, this this fun new uh, book that that me and my mom are studying together. So this is a a book about the the bloodline of Christ. It is a book called The Dynasty of the Holy Grail, uh, compiled by Vern Swanson. And um, just kind of giving a little bit of background to um, the author and, and different things before we begin, um, let me share uh, Vern Swanson's website. Um, so vernggswanson.wordpress.com. And um, he uh, deals with art, political uh, and religious thinking. He's an author and a fine art consultant. Uh, in no way is this a... <laughs> Uh, a promotion of of him or anything, but just kind of an idea into to who he is and and what he loves to study. So um, on his website, if you go to the books uh, link, uh, he has a few different papers and and books on on various topics, uh, art and um, theology and, and things as well um, that you can uh, take a look at. So um, one thing that's not on that website, I, I don't believe, I couldn't find it anyway, is uh, his newest book uh, called The Hour of God's Judgment. And this is Joseph Smith's paradigm of the last days. So we have many different timelines and uh, things to, to look at of, of late. And um, he gives a uh, kind of a different paradigm or a different perspective on how Joseph Smith saw the last part of the latter days and, uh, you know, the seven years tribu tribulation, etc. He has a, a much different take on it than um, many of the, the timelines that we tend to, to see floating around these days. I have not read that book, but it's on, on my to-do list. I, I've definitely skimmed and uh, looked at some of the, the fun little topics there. But um, again, not a promotion of his book or <laughs> anything like that, but uh, just came, giving a, a bird's eye view into to Vern Swanson and, and his interests. But um, this study will be on um, the, the Holy Grail topic. Um, the reason that we're not doing this as a, a full-on book club with lots of participants is because we have so many things to, to be studying all the time, don't we, Mom? Um, uh, all of our book clubs are in, in very different places and different speeds, and we just didn't want to add any more homework or another hefty book to, to purchase uh, along with, with that. And so we're just kind of doing it as, as uh, a side study for ourselves and um, you're welcome to, to listen in kind of as a, a fly on the wall to our rantings and ravings or ideas as we are studying this book. Um, we're not uh, super geniuses at this. Um, we, we've taken or we're starting to take uh, Mandy Green's course on uh, uh, Magdalene and uh, uh, Divine Feminine, etc. Um, but uh, I don't know any of these ideas and things aren't uh, a reflection of the author or of the church in general or, or anything like that. But um, yeah, just just a fun uh, discussion on, on a book as we're, we're reading. So um, diving into, uh, we've got a preface, an introduction, and chapter one that we'll all be discussing uh, today. So from the preface here, um, he uh, Brother Swanson makes it very clear that he is not uh, speaking uh, on behalf of the church or any of uh, core doctrines. These are a lot of different um, 
theories and findings and um, ancient texts that he's pulling up to to form uh, kind of some ideas and hypothesis and avenues for for future study, etc. So I, I find that very interesting. But um, mom, do you want to like kind of go through what was um, his conversion process and and that things that formed him um, as a gospel scholar um, there in the, in the preface? Well, it starts out. I believe he was fourteen when he converted to our church and uh, his mom didn't like it. She thought we were a cult and, and a satanic cult. And anyway, so she had this reverend from Church of Christ, was it? Um, let's see. It, yeah, Church of Christ. That um, she had him try to uh, indoctrinate him and, and uh, get him so he wouldn't want to stay a member of the church and that he wouldn't believe the, these things and stuff. But it it did just the opposite. It just made him more build his testimony that the church was true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like what he says there, that in retrospect, most of my gospel research and apologetics since that time have centered on the uh, critical protestations of this Reverend Cade that um, was, was trying to deprogram him from the, uh, the LDS faith there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, just kind of formed who he was um, and how he approaches hard gospel topics and, and things that we typically don't talk about. So yeah, I, I love that. Um, so from the introduction to this, um, I think it's important to kind of start off with one of his first statements here. It says, I do not teach of Christ's possible marriage as church doctrine, but only as probable postulate. Um, throughout the introduction, he um, kind of talks about how this book came to be. Um, I know that I was definitely... Uh, the first time I heard of anything like this was with the Da Vinci Code. I think that that's true for most of the saints, if not most of uh, the, the world, or especially like the, the Christian world. Um, but um, it says here in uh, 2003, Dan Brown's best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, burst upon the scene as a means of airing corrosive anti-Christian ideology. Um, it says that scholars from both sides of the equation are thoroughly engaged in these questions now. The topic has now become one of central concern to Latter-day Saints, Protestants, Orthodox, and Catholic Christians who were concerned over the factual information found in the fictional The Da Vinci Code. Um, sorry if I'm, I'm reading too much, but <laughs> I think that this is all very interesting as we are, we're getting into it. And and why this Da Vinci Code really stemmed this research and uh, compilation that, that Brother Swanson's doing. Mm -hmm. um, says that a Hollywood movie version of Dan Brown's novel has undercut the book's actually marginal factual base, or already marginal factual base. Uh, Dan Brown's future novel may ne negatively center on the Mormons and the Freemasons. So I think it's important to note that this compilation, this book that we're reading from, um, was just right on the heels of that. So we're talking early 2000s and, and revised a little bit later, but um, 
some of the the language and, and things here, you know, like he's uh, referring to us as Mormons, and, and we'll probably quote that throughout the book, but uh, since then, uh, we are known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that emphasis, right, um, instead of that, but many of the quotes may, may still reflect Mormons. But I, I find that very interesting, that Dan Brown's future novel may negatively center on the Mormons and the Freemasons. As, uh, as things are brought to light and, and we are claiming um, certain ideas that the, the royal bloodline uh, is, is still active and, and flows down through to, um, to, to us, uh, specifically with, with Joseph Smith, as we later point out. Um, but anyway, so he mentions that being forewarned is forearmed. And so the purpose of this publication is to provide honest research and sound methodology on the topic because many people do not have sufficient gospel framework to interpret grail findings. Many times we're just um, confronted with the propaganda or kind of the twist on the truth um, and letting other people tell us what we believe rather mm -hmm. than uh, getting a, a proper framework. And so um, he makes mention that he is absolutely welcome and encourages any corrections or feedback or um, other additional findings or sources um, to be submitted to him because he does plan on uh, producing future revisions of this compilation and, and this uh, this book at, at a later date. So, yeah, any other uh, comments that you would make on preface or introduction there? Uh not really, other than I was just thinking as we was going through that when you was talking about um, the author of the Da Vinci Code, that his second one might be kind of an attack on our church because we do believe that Christ was married. And I was thinking, well, some of the, but uh, if you'd mentioned a Sunday school or something, <laughs> there'd probably be like tons that you'd be shocking that's mm. never heard that, yeah. you know, so it's not something we really teach. Yeah, I was talking with somebody the other day that um, said that in their uh, family search account, their family tree, that it, it goes back to Christ and, and she's like, well, should I call family search about that and get that corrected or anything? And I'm like, <laughs> no, because it's probably true <laughs> but um yeah like very few know or or tend to believe that, that that might be a possibility um but as we'll see going through this there is extensive um yeah. uh, indicators that 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 bloodline is important and crucial to the restoration of all things but yeah sometimes we just have to kind of take a step back throw down all of our unbelief and just try to uh, to glean what is there and make our own hypothesis and, and go to the Lord and, and ask our own ways uh, for verification or um, things to study in a given uh, aspect of this. But yeah, um, I'm totally sold on it. <laughs> but, it, it just, it feels so right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, I've always questioned it even younger in my life because like how could christ um what's the word i want to say fulfill 
all righteousness or the pattern yeah. of all things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How could you do that without being married? <laughs> and there's no good answer other than he was married. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's, there's lines of this that, you know, may or may not be uh, accurate, but that this book doesn't even uh, discuss or cover that I, I found in other sources in, in my reading of um, other possible things related to it. We'll get into that as we, we dive into the different chapters, but yeah. Um, so part one, th this book is organized uh, a little bit differently. So we have, um, we have parts and then individual chapters within those parts. Um, but there's a, a small little introduction to each part uh, before it actually dives into the chapters that pertain to it. So um, this is part one, the introduction to part one, I guess you could say. Um, I, I love how it's organized. It's just sometimes hard to kind of refer <laughs> to the, the different parts of it since we're, we're used to just chapter breaks. Um, but anyway, so part one is the Grail Covenant of the Old Testament. And um, we'll start looking at birthright and lineage within that, that context here. But um, the introduction to part one says that where does the root of the story begin? Uh, Celtic scholar Roger Sherman Loomis correctly believed that the tradition began in Ireland. Others believe that the Grail romances are originated in Wales with Irish influence. But the further we look into the past, the more we find convergences that relate to our account. We might even find it as broadly as the enduring fairy tales of Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Cinderella, or Mozart's Magic Flute. But where does it really begin? Unquestionably, the legend of the Holy Grail originates, on this earth at least, with Adam and Eve. Therefore, we must start at the beginning and trace God's dealings with mankind through the ages. And so that's what part one is all about, uh, going back in history and, and finding out the precursors or the, the preparatory lineages and, and things in order to look ahead from Christ on and, and see um, if it's fulfilling the pattern or not kind of thing. So anything else that you would bring up from, from that part one introduction there? We really don't address too much about Adam and Eve, you know, in this next part. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that it starts, but it really dives in somewhere else in the book. If I heard Is it? right, yeah. Okay. So this one is kind of going through the the patriarch story, um, but but it does begin with Adam and Eve. Adam, Adam and Eve are the template of everything, aren't they? Like, <laughs> um, the pattern of getting back to heaven is so beautifully told within that story and all other things are just reiterances or um, nuances to that original Adam and Eve story. And if it doesn't address that later on in there, we'll mm -hmm. discuss it later. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's so impartial. Yeah. So right. um, this, this first part, um, so chapter one is called The Birthright and the Lineage. And we're talking about lots of different things here, but um, a lot to do with um, some of the different grail cups that have been found or are supposed to be it. And um, anyway, I think it's just kind of interesting to go through some of these. So we have um, 
I'm kind of bouncing around through it. So it, if I bounce around too much and miss one, remind me. But um, he... Yeah, let's bring up the one, the, the first one here. It says, one of the most famous was the cup of blue glass with a green surround, decorated with tiny crosses found in 1906 in Glastonbury's Bride's Well. Um, so then he kind of uh, tells some, some different nuances to that story that it might not actually be because of timing and, and things, but um, I could not find a picture of it. I really want to see that one, but... Uh, there's there's many different uh, instances of um, it being a a glass chalice or, or cup, but we, we don't know. There's there's lots of different other options here. Um, we talk about possibly a silver cup or a golden cup or maybe a fired uh, cup. And there's all scriptures to to reference all of these throughout the the book here, but. Um, uh, we have lots of different iterances of, of cups and chalices and, and that imagery of, of some sort of receptacle, right, throughout scripture. And so it seems like everybody jumps on the, the bandwagon here. Um, there's the Antioch cup, the Genoa cup, the Valencia cup, the Trent cup, the uh, Nanteos cup the Hawkshorn Park Cup, etc. I tried to find some, some images of uh, some of these, um, which some of them are easy to find, some of them are not. Uh, this is the Antioch Chalice. Um, you'll see that it has lots of um, uh, carved or um, engraven imagery in there. This is the Nanteos Cup. This is a, a medieval wooden uh, mazer or bowl. Um, that that is found there. So uh, we have all different kinds of materials that these are being made out of, and and uh, supposedly pointing back um, to different uh, aspects that are mentioned in scripture or alluded to in uh, midrash uh, traditions, etc. But anyway, um, one of the most intriguing, uh, I would say, wouldn't you, that is this silver cup of Benjamin. Um, that we have. And, and we'll go into the story here in a bit. Um, but yeah, what, what do we learn about the, the silver cup of Benjamin here um, from Brother Swanson? I think that um, there's, there's two or three paragraphs here that are very interesting, but what did you learn out of it? I, I had, if I had learned this before, I'd forgotten it, but I had never heard that it, um, it at least I don't remember that it was referred to as a divining club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what is divining? Like what are examples of divination or, or, or divining? Well, put you uh, on the spot. sorry. <laughs> well, kind of like that, the divining rod that, um, uh, who was it that had that? Uh-huh. Aaron. Yeah, and also uh, in the latter days. Of oh, Oliver Cowdery. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, DNC 8. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, the divining stones, the Urim and Thummim, uh, in the, the uh, priest breastplate 
Um, those are divining things. So anytime that we are asking God questions, um, he implements it all throughout scripture, the, the use of instruments of, of divination or, or divining, um, which like disclaimer, right? Like <laughs> there's, there's good divining and there's bad divining. It's, we're not talking crystal balls and, and, and using it in, in a sorcery type of way, but um, from a light perspective, Urim, Thummim, lights and perfections, um, to negate the fact that God uses instruments of divination in, uh, in mankind uh, would be to, to negate much of, of our scripture, right? And so... Um, Even the Leahona, would that yeah. be... Mm -hmm. Yeah, an object that um, is used to communicate with with deity and um, with the spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, even scriptures can be divination uh -huh. tools and uh, yeah. revelation, hearing him. Something that gives us revelation, personal revelation. On mm -hmm. But there is definitely, as all things, uh, a usurpation that Satan, uh, a counterfeit that he takes and... Always. Uh, <laughs> it was wild with it, as we see so prevalent in our day. Um, but those things are available to us in the restoration of all things. Oh, side, that's totally aside. <laughs> We're talking about <laughs> the Holy Grail here. Yeah. But um, so yeah, that Benjamin's well, I guess Joseph's cup that um, he uses to divine um, uh, Benjamin and um. Uh, Anyway, that whole story from, from Genesis 40 there. Yeah, where he puts the cup in uh, Simon, Simeon's, in Simeon's sack of grain. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he can get Benjamin to come to Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one is fascinating to think of the possibility of that and he kind of lays it out how he thinks it could be uh-huh how that specific cup could be the actual holy grail and mm -hmm. we'll find out about that through lineage and, and stories here in a bit but um mm -hmm. while he is talking about the the different types of vessels that uh, points of consideration i think it's important that we're we're always not uh, caught up in physical tangible um, but some different uh, important points that he brings here with scripture, um, the talk of the bitter cup of Gethsemane. Um, we're, we're talking about this in Isaiah 51, Psalms, John, um, 1 Corinthians, we have a uh, mention of, of that cup. And so even if there is a tangible relic or, or physical thing, uh, Pointing back to the the spiritual and symbolic, uh, I think is is very important. Um, uh, another uh, line um, of thought. Uh -huh. It's supposed to be the cup that Christ, that Jesus drank the last time that he drank with his um, his apostles and stuff at like the last, the last at, supper. At the Last Supper. And uh, and he said, he told them that he wouldn't drink from the fruit of the vine 
until the second coming when he has the wedding feast. Mm -hmm. So that's the significance of this Holy Grail as a cup. It's, mm -hmm. it's supposed to be the one that he had there at Kip. So it would have got passed down to him. Yeah. Um, and then uh, specifically referencing the last days there, uh, a few of the different scriptures from Psalms, uh, uh, Jeremiah, Matthew, um, says, and then there's the, the horrible portion of their cup that all men must drink in the last days. Uh, a cup of trembling, fury, wrath, astonishment, desolation, indignation. Uh, we have many different uh, sources and, and references to that, as well as Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Revelation there that he gives scriptures for. Um, but yeah, very interesting to, to think about all of those lines. But I really love his last paragraph in that section. It says, on the other hand, the paper or plastic cup of the weekly Sunday LDS sacrament cannot be ignored in light of the above dimensioned prominent cups. For certainly, it is a cup of remembrance, as stated in Luke, and a cup of consolation, as Jeremiah talks about. Ultimately, the cup equates with a vessel, and the vessel with a human, and the human with a dynasty, or a chosen race, and the dynasty with the very power of God. The Holy Grail was more than just a shell or cup container, it was a living vessel. The only Christian church that gives much prominence to genealogical authority is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this is a quote from DNC 1. The only true priesthood and living bloodline church upon the face of the whole earth. And so I think that that's uh, uh, an important thing to kind of keep in mind um, as we are going back and forth between physical and, and symbolic references um, in all of this, this book here. So, it... Oh, look, right there in DNC 130, it's saying that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the only true priesthood and living bloodline. Or is that in brackets doesn't, isn't part of the... Uh-huh, yeah, so anything that's in brackets like that is something that the author is adding to the original. Oh, okay, because I was saying that's about as plain as you can get. <laughs> okay, I fell into that one. Uh-huh, yeah. So it, it says, the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, but he equates true, uh, well, he's not equating, but like uh, giving a, a possibility to think about how how true is offering a often a reference to priesthood line and authority and living being a reference to to blood or to uh, familial living lines uh -huh. yeah 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 because we'll see lots of brackets all the way through here <laughs> that he I remember that <laughs> but yeah they're they're not original but uh, uh -huh. just points yeah. to ponder is to do further studies so um, he starts off the, the patriarchal kind of a thing, uh, really focusing in on uh, Israel and uh, Jacob, uh, referencing Israel there, and kind of his posterity. Um, but I, I do believe that somewhere down through the book, he, he focuses in on Adam and Eve, Abraham, Sarah, all that. But um, 
he gives kind of a, a brief uh, history or, or rundown of uh, Israel's 12 sons and uh, kind of how Reuben lost the, the birthright and why the birthright is split into two, that there's a, a division, which I think is super crucial to, um, to, to know and, and to have concrete in our minds, right? Because, I don't know, I think we, if we would ask uh, a general uh, family feud style question, we pulled 100 members of the church <laughs> who did the birthright go to after Reuben lost it? And we would just say Joseph, right? But the important thing is that the birthright was split into two parts. And, and here we're talking about uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Joseph being the, the recipients of the birthright blessing, but well, in very different ways. Yeah. So we need to discuss how Judah is the other part that Joseph is because it goes from the first wife to the second wife. Mm -hmm. to, yeah, because sequentially, he's much further down the line. But oh Yeah, he was the 11th. Yeah, but Rachel being the original love of, of Joseph, being the, the, the second natural uh, wife, not a handmaiden, and uh, being the firstborn of, of her kind of thing. And so that's why... Uh, it went the blessing part went to Joseph the birthright went to Joseph that's the blessings but there's it's broken into two parts because the other is the scepter part and um, the let's see is that a covenantal blessing no uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Blessing. Yeah. So, so looking at birthright, let's let's talk about that for a second because sometimes we know, but if if uh, somebody listening might not uh, have a firm grasp on it, but that in uh, Jewish culture, when a you know going from from generation to generation as we have death and and replacement within uh, families going on that there is a birthright son that assumes all responsibility for taking care of the family once the father is incapacitated or has deceased right and so um there's two parts to a a birthright responsibility there's the the scepter part the the ruling part um, the uh, we're very much talking Davidic covenant uh, language or um, suzerain vassal type uh, uh, imagery here. Um, well, not even imagery, just <laughs> factual uh, layouts of uh, how that worked. So there's the scepter, the the ruling part of the family, and there is the the blessings of the firstborn, the double portion. Uh, financial um, inheritance part because as a birthright son you are in charge of the monetary and uh, physical well-being of the the family once the father is gone uh, to earn enough for the family's um, uh, sustaining uh, life kind of a thing and so um, there's those those two different aspects that are coming through but the, the covenant blessing of the royal scepter 
goes to Judah, and the the double portion goes to to Joseph in, in a very real way, right? With with Ephraim and Manasseh, the double blessing being uh, highly emphasized uh, in that story there. So let's talk about Judah, why he is the scepter one, because he's he's fourth down the line of going down uh, Leah's line. So there was Reuben, and he slept with uh, his father's wife, the handmaiden. Mm-hmm. And then the next two were Simeon and Levi. And they, that fiasco they went through, they were trying to pre- protect the honor of their sister Dinah and went and and anyway, they they had them circumcised, isn't it? All of the, and then while they were weak from that, they go in and kill them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have very interesting, grievous sins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this is... Uh, so interesting in all of the lineage here uh we've got some very interesting characters in uh the the history of of israel and um how that all gets uh, passed down here but but judah is is fourth in line and um when the three oldest uh tend to yeah so he's the first righteous one of the those, those. Mm-hmm. So that's why he gets chosen yeah um let's see so what else with that is there anything else before we go on to the section called the book of joseph um that book of joseph is very interesting there's there's a few things here that i had not um previously considered or, or known before. And so I think, excuse me if I'm reading too much here, but um, there, there's lots of interesting, fun quotes and, and ideas to, to look at here. But uh, Vern says that nearly a fourth of the book of Genesis, which spans over 2,000 years of history, is devoted to the life of Joseph of Egypt. I mean, Genesis is such a wide range of history, right? I mean, we've got tons of years being talked about here and it's like a a very quick synopsis of things but then moses the author just goes joseph of egypt here's a a big story that we need to gain a lot out of i mean he does uh zoom in with uh father abraham but uh like it says here a fourth of the book of genesis is is devoted to the life of joseph of egypt Um, He says that, uh, well, this is a quote from Robert J. Matthews. He points out, That proportion ought to give us an idea of how Moses, the inspired author of Genesis, felt about the importance of Joseph's story. And so, what would you say to that? You know, kind of reading from from the rest of this section here, like, what is the importance of Joseph of Egypt? And, And what does that have to do with the Holy Grail? What does it have to do with anything? 
but it's everything really because look at us here in the latter day we're the we're from ephraim the tribe of ephraim this um and and if we're if you're a member of the church and you're not from the line of Ephraim, you're adopted into it. And we have a great calling here uh, in these latter days, especially these la the last part of the latter days. Mm -hmm. it's, it's great. And so this whole story is kind of leading up to this and why things are like they are. And and so I, it's, it's, it's a really important story. Mm -hmm. It all plays out. And um, let's see, there's lots of different tangents <laughs> I want to go down, but um, just kind of going in order here with how he brings it out that um, uh, Jacob's reference to the everlasting hills in the blessing that he pronounces upon them um, uh, might be interpreted as the Western Hemisphere, namely North and South America, like you were talking about there. And um, he talks about two different fulfillments, uh, partially fulfilled during the Book of Mormon times when Lehi left Jerusalem for the Americas, and then later during the Northern European colonization of the New, New World. And so um, Zion was not only in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but also in the Americas. Just how important Joseph of Egypt is can be seen in Lehi's statement that I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. I mean, mostly we talk about being sons of Father Abraham or this or that. I mean, we have lots of different things, right? Um, but rather than referencing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is such a prominent lineage in, in Book of Mormon, Lehi chooses to really point out that that he is a descendant of Joseph. And, and so I think that that's highly important in, in that whole narrative there. So it's interesting there that Joseph was rewarded with the land of Zion. Mm -hmm. and, and Zion can refer to the Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, or or this land of Zion here. And isn't uh, it interesting how when Joseph is given the double portion or the um, inheritance part of the uh, the blessing, right, that it's always split in two. And even we have Jerusalem and New Jerusalem, kind of a, a split in that way, rather than just Ephraim and Manasseh. I mean, that there's there's so much covenant splitting here that, that is happening. I'd never really considered Jerusalem and New Jerusalem being a, a, a part of that. Mm -hmm. Another thing we kind of skipped over, but uh, earlier, but it's important is this when Ephraim uh, took his place with this uh, blessing here uh, when Jacob gave pronounce the blessings on him and he given his portion there it says that marked the end of the old patriarchal system and the beginning of a 
power sharing era. And that's why it splits into two that share that birthright. But up until then, it was just a patriarchal system from father to son to father to son. Oh, yeah. That's the end of that at that point. Yeah, I love that. Um, which kind of makes me, I mean, it's somewhat related, but, um, do you remember in, uh, reading the, the original text of Esdras and when he is conversing with the angel Uriel, he asks about time, like, when are we going to be delivered from all of this? And, and the history of the earth, where are we at in the history of the earth? And the angel Uriel says that it uh, the midpoint was with Jacob clean to, to Esau's heel from, from the womb, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I found that so interesting that that was a, a hinge point or a midpoint in the history of, of man. And, and I've always just kind of wondered on that. But like you said there, like the kind of a separation from uh, or transition from patriarchal to, to hierarchical, um, very interesting. Um, oh, one note that I found very interesting with, um, the, the remnant or, um, the, the, uh, what's the word? The word's eluding me right now, but, um, the, the blessing with Joseph and the, the branch that, goes over the wall kind of thing right um it it always makes me think of of tim ballard's book when he references that when george washington was inaugurated he chose to place his hand on that bible on chapters 49 and 50 of genesis which talks about that very thing of joseph's blessing and um the 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 overflowing branch uh referring to the americas here so like even in a modern context we do have um different religions and zionist kind of movements and and ideology um coming through uh fulfilling a lot of these promises here so um the next part is super interesting um because i don't know if i'd ever heard this before i don't know why but um it says that many of these prophecies were written in a scripture we titled the book of Joseph. Joseph Smith noted that he wanted to translate the scroll of the book of Joseph that was found, like the, the book of Abraham, among the Michael Chandler Egyptian papyri in 1835. Sadly, he never accomplished the task, which might have been the proof text to my present efforts or Vern's efforts here. Though it was never translated, we gather from a letter written by Oliver Cowdery to a Mr. Fry that it included vital information on the Godhead, the fall of Adam, and other important facts regarding this earth. Perhaps this ancient text would have revealed the importance of Joseph Smith's birthright lineage. And so, um, uh, anyway, I just found that all very interesting. Um... I don't know. I consider myself a, a fairly decent gospel scholar. I had never heard of the book of Joseph and, and this whole um, Oliver Cowdery wrote there. Um, that, that was new to me. And 
gets my brain going every time of like, hmm. So restoration of all things, new scripture yeah. being yeah. restored, etc. Like, when's that going to come out? I I told if if Moses thought he was so much of an interest for us to really study um, and uh, pinpoint on, give a quarter of the whole book of Genesis to to him. It would be interesting to to find out more in a restoration uh, environment. But yeah. So what else from from that section and uh, everything would you point out or or talk about? Well, it references uh, Second Nephi, where uh, Joseph of Egypt has a prophecy that a choice seer would appear from his seed. So he's prophesied about Joseph Smith uh, being from his seed and he was be um, restoring and that all came about. Uh -huh. Yeah, so interesting. Um, so the next section is called Ephraim Becomes the Birthright Heir. And so we have lots of uh, kind of backstory and history on Ephraim and Manasseh and how um, Israel uh, swaps his hands and, and gives the uh, double portion kind of thing to, to Ephraim. Um, that uh, both of these sons are from Joseph's wife, Seneth. Uh, Ephraim means, okay, the, the name Ephraim means, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so I think that that's very interesting, especially how it applies to uh, our Joseph in, in the latter days as well. Um, let's see. So how does Ephraim and Manasseh fit into the 12 tribes? Because if we're really counting, it's 13 tribes, right? So, like, where, like, what's the backstory and how does that all fit in? And, and why is Ephraim so crucial to that whole thing? Well, there was 12 sons of, of Jacob, Israel. And where uh, Ephraim got a portion and, and Manasseh got a portion. So there's two, uh, there's a double portion coming from joseph so that kind of if you're just talking 12 then that leaves uh one of the others out you know and sometimes uh, they refer to it being levi because the tribe of levi because they're the ones that uh live amongst all of them a portion of them because they have the priesthood and sometimes it's the referred to as Dan so mm -hmm. yeah and some of those lists Dan is is left out kind of interesting isn't it mm -hmm. um it kind of brings to mind just this past week somebody was referring to um the antichrist possibly coming from the tribe of Dan and I was like really I'd never heard that I don't know why but that kind of stood out to me uh when I was reading this tonight with you that, huh, why is Dan 
sometimes left out of the the listing of the tribes did he possibly as well lose the birthright to some degree of of something and pointing to the fact that the antichrist does come through that lineage and and things i don't know um because like the tribe of dan isn't that the the very most northern tribe um when the the israelites get their layout right from from dan to beersheba uh, dan's the the northern one and being the most northern or the most because like north in, in symbolism is kind of like the the wilderness or the the most off or rebellious or it can represent lots of different things but I, I don't know kind of made me think of of what is dan's story i need to to find out more yeah it might be wrong it seems like dan had a portion down lower around by where judah and stuff was but then they chose they wanted to be further away they, they were a rebellious tribe it kind of yeah. sounds like Lot and Abraham, right? Like when they get to choose where they want to go, and Dan chose that. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I'm I'm not sure on that, but that runs in my mind. So I have this interesting book. I don't know if it'll zoom in. Yeah. So ancient testaments of the patriarchs. So these are. Autobiographies from the Dead Sea Scrolls by Ken Johnson. And so it just kind of gives some um, different testaments from the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's the, the table of contents. Um, so you can kind of see like the testament of, uh, you know, some of the, the patriarchs, Enos, Lamech, uh, Noah, Abraham, etc. But then it really focuses in and gives a testament of each of the, the 12 tribes. And so I was just curious, because I, I was going to talk about this later on with Joseph, but um, with the, the Testament of Dan, now that it's come into mind, <laughs> so I was looking at that. Um, uh, the Testament of Dan concerning anger and lying. And so I'm not really quoting anything from here, but like uh, just the different sections here. So each section is kind of like a different... Uh, tidbit or story from the testament of dan this doesn't actually contain text from the dead sea scrolls just some of the the highlights from it, it seems like um talks about dan's hatred uh, hatred and envy the wrath of rich and poor how to avoid being attacked with anger last day prophecy the savior and dan's death so it seems like there is some Kind of sorted history with with dan there that i had not previously known or considered so yeah that's going to be a side tangent that i'm <laughs> going to go down later <laughs> um now you can kind of see how mine and my mom's studies go to to some degree we have prepped a lot with with this one but <laughs> um typically when we're studying together we're just like constantly going off on tangents and as things come up like ooh, let's go look that up real quick let's do this let's do that um and coming up with <laughs> homework assignments during the week but um anyway it, it's super fun having a, a good kind of starting off point and then going and diving and finding out the sources right um let's see yeah so i i, I want to quote from this paragraph here it says in a vision Joseph saw Ephraim's children 
to the third generation, which is interesting. In like, just do a word study on uh, third and fourth generation uh, type imagery of um, sins and transgressions and blessings and cursings. Um, I, I I've done it about halfway. I still have half of the references to go, but very interesting insights into um, generational issues and what is passed on to third and fourth generations and uh, what is not because I think we have a lot of misconceptions with that in in the church um, you know that we must be um, ooh sorry what's the article of faith we must be accountable or punished for our own sins and not for Adam's transgression and I think that fourth article second right third anyway anyway. i need to brush up on my articles i'm pretty sure it's second because the fourth one is uh faith repentance baptism um yeah third one's atonement yeah second second article of faith okay man must be you should go back to primary is it punished oh my gosh i i we believe we be punished for our own sins and not Adam's transgressions. I I don't know. I I'm kind of blanking on it, but um. <laughs> now you'll see like how my brain actually works. Like sometimes I have things really good, and sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh! All of a sudden I can't paraphrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, church website. This is the Articles of Faith. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sometimes I'm real dumb. Oh dear. But anyway, like, what is the role of generational sins, iniquities, etc., in in all things? Um, and coming back to the topic at hand, <laughs> that in a vision, Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, and there's an interesting story that I'll share here in a second about generations there. Um. He had the opportunity to see Jacob's blessing upon Ephraim begin to come to pass. The import of this blessing is just now beginning to be understood. We may understand that the latter unique blessings, as stated by Moses upon Ephraim and his um, uh, and his elder brother Manasseh, extend to the very last days. Quote from Deuteronomy. His glory is like the firstling of the bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So what do we gain from that quote there in Deuteronomy, that uh, insight into um, Ephraim and Manasseh? And what about the unicorns? Like, why? What? What do we got there? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> For a brief second, I thought we had everybody on, you know, and I'm just giving everybody a chance to jump in there. And then I think, oh, yeah, you're asking me. It's just well, anyway, yep. the, the unicorn is mentioned there in the Bible, but Joseph Smith makes a um, change when he trans in this inspired translation and he changes it from the unicorn to uh, the wild ox 
is interesting. And that, and that is the symbol of the tribe of Ephraim is the ox. Mm -hmm. But we'll see throughout many different uh, sources or ancient texts or, or traditions that it is unicorn translated as that, right? So mm -hmm. keeping in mind that this wild ox that is now extinct in, in, in Israel is um, often labeled a unicorn. So we have both oxen and, and unicorn imagery uh, kind, kind of being interchanged throughout different faith traditions, etc. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> not to, to be crass, but can you imagine like um, having these wild oxen um, portrayed in our baptism fonts or or perhaps even unicorns? Um, oh, that'd be crazy. Yeah, I mean, just, just the imagery popped in my head. And I, again, I'm not trying to be crass or anything, but like um, the... What is the type of the unicorn here? That it is, um, uh, it, it's this, this one-horned animal, like it says here, to um, uh, where did it to push together the ends of the earth, kind of thing. Oh yeah, um, with them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth and and help guide and steer them. And um, I think that there's some, some imagery or symbolism behind just one horn versus uh, kind of a dual horn system of um, that there's, there's one path, the, the straight and narrow kind of a thing, and this, this wild ox uh, being uh, a guiding force in one way and not a, a forked, uh, divided kind of imagery. But then there's also good symbolism with two or pairs uh, of horns because horns as far as I know, always represent power. Um, anytime you see a statue of Moses from uh, a Christian perspective, he has horns, um, but those horns are, are power. Um, but uh, this this ox or a unicorn um, having horns of, of power in different contexts. Anyway, sorry, that was like a tangent, but <laughs> uh, I think that we can have benefit from, from both kind of ideas. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. It, it's so interesting that we zoom in so heavily on Joseph of Egypt, but then Ephraim doesn't have much. So after this time that it's talking about, uh, the, the birthright blessing, etc., little is known about the life of Ephraim himself. A minor personality, or of his posterity, even though his name becomes the primary focus for the genealogy of the sacred birthright. Um, and, and just kind of quoting, because there's a lot of stuff in these next paragraphs here, but um, according to scripture, he was fruitful, though two of his sons were slain while raiding the cattle of the Philistines. At the first census, Ephraim's tribe of 40,500 men was the smallest of all, excepting his brother Manasseh's and his uncle Benjamin's. And that's from Numbers 133. I think that's an interesting one. Like, I went and looked at that, and I'm like, hmm, I don't know. I, I need to brush up on all my, <laughs> my tribe uh, census records. But um, undoubtedly, this was because the older tribes, uh, the other tribes were somewhat older. However, taken together, Joseph's sons, both Ephraim and Manasseh, definitely formed the largest group 
when they're combined, um, even though Ephraim's wasn't as, as big just right then. Um, in fact, the tribe of Ephraim would dominate the later history of the earth in a very real way, both in terms of population and authority. Wilfred Woodruff and Orson Pratt pointed this out, quote, The salvation of both Jew and Gentile, this people hold in their hands the salvation of the twelve tribes of Israel. It was not the eldest son, but to Ephraim, the son of Joseph, that these promises were made. Joseph was the youngest, but one of the twelve patriarchs. And though his son, uh, through his son Ephraim, God had raised you up and has put this power into your hands, and you hold the keys for the salvation of Israel. End quote. I think that that's super crucial to, to, to really point out and um, contemplate on how, um, how that scripture... Um, let's see. So, again, how we take such a zoom in to Joseph of Egypt, yet... We, we know such little about his life, but, but Moses really makes a point of uh, pointing to him and then um, the, the blessings, the birthright of uh, uh, Ephraim. But yet it's small, but it grows uh, exponentially in its uh, authority and um, responsibilities of the last days and preparing for the second coming. It's, it's Ephraim that hold the uh he placed the his holy priesthood mm -hmm. and his servants to help um well like we're doing right now gathering israel mm -hmm. that's what we're here for yeah so um, kind of in line with uh, some of the earlier parts of uh, this thing with the generations and the early part of Ephraim's history. Uh, this was a really interesting that a friend of mine sent to me uh, uh, a while back. Um, so I, I'll, I'll put the, the link to this in uh, our show notes and everything. But um, here it talks about um, Ephraim. And... Uh, We'll get to Joshua, the, the Ephraimite, here in this next section. Um, but it says that Joshua's lineage is traced all the way back to Ephraim. It was upon these mighty roots that the tribe of Ephraim would ascend to the forefront of Israel's history. The ancient Midrash, known as the Book of Jasher, states Ephraim miscalculated the time of departure. They left Egypt 30 years too early. As a result of their disobedience, they were met by a hostile army of Philistines. 30,000 Ephraimite troops engaged 20,000 Philistines near Gath. All but 10 of the Ephraimite men were slain. These 10 escaped, fled back to Egypt, and informed Ephraim of what had transpired. Ephraim wept and mourned for many days. The route of the Exodus, according to the legend, was in order to lead the Israelites around and away from the scattered bones of the dead and strewn Ephraimite army. And so I found that super interesting. And like, I want to dive more into to that story as well. But, um, you know, any little part of Ephraim that we can uh, glean, I, I think is, is super helpful. So that whole article that I'll uh, place in there is, is all about, the whole article is about Ephraim and, and different tidbits from, from their life. But... Um, 
for our study here in <laughs> Holy Grail, um, uh, the important part that it points out just right there is that Joshua was an Ephraimite. And so now that story gets fun. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I so love that part. Take us on that journey. Like what why? Why is that so okay. funny? So Joseph's an Ephraimite. And with uh, Brother Swanson's um, studies. Anyway, he came up with this possibility that Joshua and his wife, uh, Mary Magdalene, comes through their lineage. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's a direct heir, in fact. In fact, it, it supposes that... Uh, she probably lived in the his uh let's see she may have been no, nobility in his house in line to inherit the silver cup of joseph oh my goodness so she would have this holy grail in her possession if this is truth here which and uh, Mr. Swanson, he he always says, you know, I've studied this out, but I'm not going to tell you this is this way and this is that way. But here he does come close. He says, it is my contention that this was, in fact, the Grail Cup of later legend. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that part. And I love that it's going to Mary Magdalene. Yeah, it opens up a huge part of this whole big story. Yeah, exactly. So just kind of quoting from that same paragraph, it says, It is not known who the Ephraimite posterity of Joshua was, except to say that they possessed their inheritance and prospered in the land. It is enticing to believe that Mary Magdalene, our first lady of the quest for the Holy Grail, was his and his wife's direct heir. And so, um, so yeah, take this, this grail cup, right? So Joseph of Egypt, coat of many colors, lots of different imagery there, as we'll get into later in, in grail uh, legend, but um, that he goes to Egypt, the land of his affliction, right? And that there is this, this instance of this divining cup um, uh, with the story of Benjamin and that Joshua possibly has this cup down through his lineage and that Mary Magdalene is the one that ends up with this divining cup and so um, you know not spoiler alert but like as we are looking at the the Holy Grail where it it possibly is a a physical object first and a symbolic object later where it, it's a tangible object that um, what's the the word humanizes i guess incarnation yeah so it uh, it she is in possession of the holy grail but then she becomes the holy grail and and her posterity through through that whole thing the the chalice the womb the cup the uh, bitter affliction like all of that all wrapped in one I, I think that's so interesting to to think about but 
Um, yeah, before reading this, I had no idea Mary Magdalene equated through um, Joshua. Uh, and yeah. Like, I knew that Joshua was But he did know that Mary Magdalene comes, is through Ephraim. She's from the tribe of Ephraim. Mm -hmm. and um and in the history and the all the paintings and art and stuff it's she's portrayed with unicorns and stuff and it's because of this lineage of the Ephraimites so anyway so we've got Mary Magdalene with Ephra the tribe of Ephraim and then We've got Jesus Christ coming through Judah. So, yeah. Yeah. So the the very last uh, paragraph of the whole of chapter one says that David's kingly line was the chosen channel for the scepter. In fact, a scripture notes that there shall never be a time when there is not a king from this lineage. Quote from Jeremiah, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. End quote. So we can imagine this to mean that there always was a bloodline heir to the throne, even if there was no throne to sit upon. And so, like you said, there, there's so much to be said for this two-part birthright the scepter and the promised land posterity like there's uh, it's so fun to to look at these two lineages and how they really play out because god works in patterns and and the pattern is prior to christ and it it definitely starts coming to fruition after christ um with these these legends and and sources and uh, texts so yeah, anything that we missed, anything that you would like to, to talk about or, or hit on? Just along with that, that, so when Christ comes again, he's going to rule as king. He is the king of kings. He is our king. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I, this story just gets funner and funner. I love this book. Yep. <laughs> I haven't even read it all yet. <laughs> you know, that's how you know it's going to be good. So um, just kind of as, as a wrap up to uh, the first chapter and introduction as we are getting started on, on this journey, um, we plan to do regular recordings and uh, discussions of these chapters, but we know because we're, we're very busy with, with book clubs and uh, meeting with everyone one-on-one -on -one and, and stuff. Um, uh, it might not be uh, as consistent as our other book clubs. Um, but if you have any other questions or comments as we are participating in this, um, feel free to um, ask those and, and comment on any of these given videos or, or chapters. Uh, they're on learningzion.com. Um, and you'll go to the, the book clubs section and uh, find Dynasty of the, the Holy Grail. And um, there you'll be able to, to read snippets, have the show notes, um, uh, these videos, transcriptions of, of uh, our recordings here, and um, uh, uh, the, the audio files as well as uh, the video if anybody wants to watch our faces as we're doing this. Um, but 
Yes, I, I highly encourage uh, making the investment and purchasing this book if this is something that you're interested in. It is quite a, a hefty price. I, don't, I can't remember. You bought yours, what, a few years back, and I, I, found, I always just read off of it. <laughs> I found it at my favorite used book place there in, where's he at? I was going to say Coeur d'Alene, but it's not Coeur d'Alene. Uh, Caldwell, in Caldwell. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, I got a, a good price, but it was still. It was still pretty pricey. <laughs> like my book, I think was like 80 bucks. I, it seems like yeah. yours was about like 50 or 60, wasn't it back? Yeah, I can't remember for sure. But, I... but kind of good luck finding it. Oh, man. <laughs> um, but it, I, I highly encourage doing it and, and everything because it's um, very interesting. Like. Just here in chapter one, there are 56 footnotes. So other than the uh, Blessings of Abraham book by E. Douglas Clark, this is the most extensive footnotes that I've found. <laughs> um, like he has, there's so many fun tangents here. Like he is quoting um, Ehat's uh, uh, talk with Joseph Smith's Introduction to Temple Ordinances and uh, Parley P. Pratt, um, uh, so many fun things in uh, the footnotes and, and tangents and, and study topics to go on and everything. But um, but yeah, it might not be for everyone. I, I, I totally get that. And if you have conflicting um, opinions on, on any of this, uh, by all means, uh, we're, we're certainly not uh, just trying to agree with everything that, that Vern's uh, pointing out, but, but just keeping an open mind as to, to, to all of it. I know that me and my mom have a, a, a little bit different perspective on uh, Christ's marriage and, and everything, but uh, again, we'll, we'll get to that as, as chapters come up. Um, but it's just interesting to think about, and because if, if n none of it was a possibility, why would we have so many different texts and uh, traditions and sources? And is it legitimately worthy of our study as Latter-day Saints? I would say, for me, it's it cemented my testimony in Christ's fulfillment of, of patterns. And so, I don't know, you be the judge as we uh, carry on these discussions and, and everything. Uh, feel free to reach out to us with anything. But anyway, we look forward to discussing each uh, chapter with you. Oh, I should probably point that out too. So, um, table of contents. We have this book is divided into eight parts, and there are 22 chapters. And um, so we'll, I think we'll try to uh, focus our discussions on one chapter at a time. Uh, some chapters are long, some chapters are small, but we'll, we'll still try to keep the, the videos to just one chapter and kind of keep it organized that way. But anyway. <laughs> it won't all be as long as tonight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we'll try to keep them a little bit uh, shorter, but. When there's good stuff, there's good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, have a great week, y'all. We'll see you later.